Today's sermon will be taken from Genesis 26, verses 1 until 33. Now there was famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give you all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as well as the stars of the heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the man of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he feared to say, My wife, thinking, Lest the man of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there for a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out at the window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of people might, easy, might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land, and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled the earth all the wells that his father's servant had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and came in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of the water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistine had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servant dug in the valley and found there were a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of well Isaac because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also, so he called its name Shitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it, so he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him in the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you, and will bless you, and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there, and called upon the name of the Lord, and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servant dug another well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Azutza his advisor, and Fikol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me, and you have sent me away from you? They said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, 
let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you, and have not uh, and have done to you nothing but good, and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent to them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. <clears throat> that same day, Isaac's servant came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, We have found water, he called in Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basmeth, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Let's say the Lord. Thanks, Jesse. That was, a, that was a long one. I appreciate you reading all that. Uh, let's pray. Father, as we study your word, we pray that the promises and the truths that are found in it, you may deeply install and drill into our hearts, and that we may in this passage see what you have planned for us, and that we may trust through this passage our Lord and Savior, and by it find strength to go through life until you come again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, that was a long passage. We're not going to be able to talk about every single part of it, but uh, we're going to try and get the main point out of these three, three verses. All right. So we're going to continue in the series that we have called The Life of Jacob. All right. And The Life of Jacob we have uh, 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 is a series that we've been trying to do for the past two weeks. They're our second week now. Last week, we studied Genesis chapter 25, which is a chapter before Genesis 26, before our passage today. Last week, Genesis chapter 25, we talked about the beginning of Jacob's life and his birth. And we saw in Jacob's birth the graciousness of God and how we included lovingly and kindly Jacob into his redemptive story. There's a bit of a ringing maybe. Um, uh, maybe, maybe it's too loud. Or maybe I'm just being too loud. Sorry. I'll try to, I'll try to calm down. All right. Um, so we saw chapter, uh, chapter 25 that um, uh, Jacob was born, and now chapter 26, it's a long one. It's kind of confusing because though it's placed after Jacob's birth, so 26, the story we read today, was placed after 25, after Jacob's birth, it's actually talking about a story that happened before Jacob's birth. You know in TV show episodes, they would sometimes start the episode with a future event and then the rest of the episode would go back in time telling us what happened leading up to that event. You know what I'm talking about? For example, you guys here watched Breaking Bad? Or did you? A while back? Sometimes it would... So episode one, season two. Okay, all right. I, I know Breaking Bad. That's right. It started with the main character, Walter, or Heisenberg, sitting in his backyard in a pool, and a plane fell on top of him, pretty much, or the remnants of a plane fell on top of him. I think it was season two. And then the rest of the episode explains why the plane fell and explains how he was involved in it. So it started with a future event, and then the rest of the story was about the backstory. This is what's going on now. Genesis 25 was a future event. 26 goes back to the story of not Jacob, but Isaac and Rebekah's life, who is Jacob's parents. That's what we're dealing with right now. 
So the passage today doesn't actually talk about Jacob's life. It talks about Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob's parents. Now, I was tempted to skip it because it doesn't fit nicely with our theme, uh, Life of Jacob. But then I realized the effectiveness of God's word is not dependent upon how nicely it fits with CCC sermon series titles and decided that we should go ahead and study it anyways. And I'm really glad that I decided to study it because I was really blessed in studying this passage. I, I know at first it seems irrelevant. What does is, what is the travels of a family thousands of years ago have to do with me today? But after I studied it, I was unbelievably ministered by it. Because through this passage, we see God strengthening his people by clarifying how we are to view and navigate through both the joys and the pains in this life. And friends, you don't need to have lived a long life to know that life is filled with good events and bad events. Life is filled with joys and pains, with blessings and sufferings. You don't have to have lived a long life to be tired and weary of how untamable and how unpredictable the sufferings in this life might seem. And some of us might be feeling that today here. All your hindered longings, all your unmet expectations, all your disappointments in life caused either by ourselves or by others or just by sheer pointlessness, it may seem. It can be overbearing. If you're here today and you're exploring the gospel, you're still exploring Christianity, what it's all about, I hope you see the Bible's view of suffering and how it does not contradict your real-life experiences and how by it, it's actually going to help you to be increasingly empathetic, which unfortunately is not what the church is often known for. If you are a Christian here today, you have received Christ as Lord and Savior, I hope that you would grow as we get a deeper understanding of what your Father in Heaven truly wants for you and has promised you, and how this promise will strengthen you to persevere through the ups and downs of this life. We have three points for today. The God who won't let us put suffering in a box. The God who won't let us settle with counterfeit joys. The God who won't let suffering be the end of our story. The God who won't let us put suffering in a box. The God who won't let us settle with counterfeit joys. The God who won't let suffering be the end of our story. Let's pray again. Father, bless our minds and our hearts as we study this long passage. And Lord, as we hear about what you have to say about a topic that is deeply um, emotive to many of us and all of us here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Point number one, the God who won't let us put suffering in a box. See, suffering, it, it just doesn't make sense, does it? I mean, in our minds, we, we want it to make sense so bad, but at some point in life, we just see that there's really no pattern to it. And we like patterns, Right, Because patterns mean that we can understand something. We can observe something. We can control something. But at some point in life, we see that, that there really is no pattern to suffering. I remember someone telling me, Tazar, three friends, good people, serve God, they go to church, but yet each of them are going through seasons of suffering. And one of them, for one of them, it was actually life-ending Another friend of mine, I recently found out, actually two, two friends of mine um, in the past few months, uh, found out that they have cancer. 
and one of them uh, was a pastor. One of them recently is on staff with a college ministry. And I'm hearing and I'm, and I'm seeing all these things and I thought to myself, why do bad things happen to nice people? Why do bad things happen to nice people? And then the other side of the coin, it's more confusing, isn't it? Why do good things happen to bad people? <laughs> Corrupt politicians enjoying their money without any justice being brought to them. Manipulative business dealers getting away with business advancements at the expense of other people. Here's a popular one that I hear a lot of from single people. Why do mean guys get the good girls? Why do mean girls get the good guys? There's just no pattern to it. it, it this, this seeming randomness and, and sufferings and blessings and joys and happiness and pains and griefs, it doesn't make sense. We can't put it in a box. And this pattern of randomness is also seen in our passage today, that good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to nice people. Let's look at verse 1. It starts off with a famine that hit Isaac's family. Okay, a famine is a bad thing. That's a grief. If a famine hit Isaac, I guess our minds would want to make sense of it, right? I guess Isaac must have been a bad person. But then you look at verse 2. You see Isaac obeying God. He's not such a bad person. In verse 2, God commanded Isaac to not go down to Egypt. Don't go down to Egypt to escape the famine. Instead, go to another land called Jerah. And Isaac did that. He didn't go to Egypt. He went to Jerah. Now, this wasn't an easy command to obey. It took a whole lot of faith from Isaac. Why? Because Egypt was a center of culture and economy at the time. And where is the best place you would go to avoid a famine? The city center. God said, don't go there. Go here instead. All the food was in Egypt, but God said, go to Jerah instead. And, and if Isaac obeyed God, he wasn't only putting himself at risk, he was putting his whole family at risk. But yet, verse 6 says, so Isaac settled in Jerah. <laughs> he didn't go to Egypt. He obeyed God at this huge risk. Why would God let famine, a bad thing, happen to somebody as obedient and good as Isaac? But then it gets more confusing. You read verse 7. You see Isaac do something really, really bad. As he entered into Gerar, he saw um, he was a visitor there, right? He saw who? King Abimelech and his people. He was a ruler of the land. And King Abimelech asked about his wife, Rebekah. Who is she? And verse 7, Isaac said, She's my sister. <laughs> For he feared to say my wife, thinking, lest the men should kill me because of Rebekah. Do you see how horrible this is? He was going to sell out his own wife to save his own skin. That's unspeakably shameful. In Genesis, when Adam first saw Eve, what did he do? He exploded into song. God said, name the animals. He said, deer, horse, dog, bird, fish. But then he saw Eve. What did he say? Bone of my bones. Flesh of my flesh. He saw Eve and he burst into poetry. The Bible says, husband, treat your wives like she's more beautiful than the most precious song out there. Because she is. But yet Isaac sold out his wife to save his own skin. How horrible. Surely something bad's going to happen to him, right? You skip down to verse 12. After Isaac put Rebekah at risk, 
And we see this. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. (laughs) And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. What? (laughs) This makes no sense. This random pattern of suffering and blessing keeps going on. And then verse 16, we see after uh, Isaac got rich, King Abimelech got threatened by his power, and he, he cruelly threw him out of the land, right? And, and then he lost his home again. And then he traveled to verse 17. Um, and, and then in, in verse 17, he went to the valley of Gerar, which is good, interesting, because even at the threat of King Abimelech, Isaac still obeyed God and remained in the, in the region of Gerar. It's, it's hard to do that. It's scary to do that. But he was an obedient man. Okay, I guess something good's going to happen after that. No. What do you see in the rest of the passage? He gets getting kicked out by these shepherds or by these herdsmen in verse 19 to 21. And, and there's just no, at this point, the randomness is just, is just too confusing. You can't find a pattern. You can't find a one-to-one correlation. We can't put suffering in a box. And it seems uncontrollable and unpredictable. But then, if you know the book of Genesis, you will have seen something odd. As you read chapter 26 and you see this random pattern, you'll actually see that this pattern of of, of suffering that seems so random has actually happened before. Twice. Genesis chapter 20 and 12. Let's talk about 20 real quick. This is really interesting. Even the author of our passage hints at it in verse 1. He's putting us back to Abraham. What does verse 1 say again? Now there is a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. The same famine that happened in Abraham's day. Where did Abraham go to avoid this famine? Let me read you Genesis chapter 20 verse 1. See if you can see similarities between Genesis 20 and Genesis 26 that we just read. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev. Abraham is Isaac's father, remember. This is a few years back. He journeyed toward the territory of Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned where? In Gerar. The same place. Guess who he met there? King Abimelech. Some say it's his son. I think it's the same guy. Either way, it's King Abimelech. And guess what King Abimelech asked Abraham about Sarah, his wife? Who is this woman? And guess what Abraham did in Genesis 20? He lied the same lie that Isaac did. Let's read it. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she's my sister. <laughs> and Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Well, you know, God saved Sarah at the end. Nothing happened. But, but still, and think about it. Why do you think King Abimelech in our passage, Genesis 26, we read about this a king of him like again, right? In verse 10 and 11, he knew the consequences of taking somebody else's wife. He told Isaac, why did you lie to me? We could have all died. How does he know that? How does he know that the consequences of taking somebody's wife is death? Because a few years back in Genesis 20, God visited him already when he took Sarah. And I said, if you touch this woman, you will be put to death. <laughs> so when, when King Abimelech told Isaac, what are you, why are you doing this? He's saying, people, stop lying to me about your wives. What is wrong with you? You're going to put me to death. Just be honest about who they are. That's why he knew. The exact same suffering that happened to Isaac's family, famine, happened before. The same exact threat that happened to Isaac's family, Abimelech, happened before. 
The same exact injustice that the wives experienced by their cruel husbands happened before. The things which have seemed so randomly to Isaac in Genesis 26 has actually already happened before. What is God saying? He's saying these things that seem random to you, they seem uncontrollable to you, they're not to me. I'm in control of it. I've ordained this random and unpredictable pattern in Genesis 26 to happen years ago in Genesis 20, and if you think it's a coincidence, the same pattern happened in Genesis 12, verse 10 to, uh, uh, verse 10 to 20. Guess what happened in Genesis 12? A famine. Just read it on your own time later. It happened to Abraham again. Abraham didn't go to Gerard this time, but he went to Egypt. Guess what he saw in Egypt? King Pharaoh. Guess what King Pharaoh asked Abraham? Who is this woman, Sarah? Guess what Abraham did? Our forefathers, guys. Abraham. Guess what he did? He... He lied again. He sold out his wife again twice. He did that twice. The same exact struggle happened. It's not random. It's not random. And this is terrifying to us, isn't it? Why? Because it takes control over our comfort and discomfort, over our joys and sufferings, out of our hands. We can't find a pattern. We can't observe it. This isn't a controlled experiment for us. And it puts it into God's hands. We are at the mercy of somebody else. And friends, that's the, that's the last thing anybody here wants to feel. We would do everything to avoid feeling like we're out of control. We love being in control. I want to make the argument even that when you get down to it, a lot of the things that we, act, that we actually do, the, the sins and the, and, the, and the failures, a lot of it has to do with wanting to remain in control over our joys and our pains. We want to, we want to keep that control. You see... Our problem, our ultimate problem, is not that we love money too much. It's that we love the control of future security that money can give us too much. You see? Money is a surface idol. What's deeper is the control you think you get when you have money. Our, our ultimate problem is not that we are so insecure and love our body image too much. But we think that by being physically attractive, we can somehow, it can somehow give us more control over how affectionate other people will be toward us. Body image isn't your ultimate issue. You want that control of affection. You see, our, your ultimate problem is not, is not just pornography. It's, it's the feeling of control, of still getting intimacy and sexual fulfillment without the emotional risk of a relationship with a real person. It's control. Our problem isn't that we just have a hard time opening up to our spouses, but we're afraid that if we actually show them the sadness and the loneliness that's underneath all that anger, you're afraid that they just might see how much control they actually have over us. And this is our plight, isn't it? Isaiah 53 says, no one seeks God. All have gone astray, all to his own. We all do this. We all desire to gain and maintain control over our pains and our joys. We do whatever we can to maximize joys and minimize pain, even when it goes against God's will. 
And in the process, one, we offend God, telling him, I'm on the throne, not you. I'll be the one who makes the decisions. I'll be the one upon my own will, based on my own judgments of right and wrong, decide how I get joy and pleasure, when and how, and I'm going to do this even if it displeases you. One, we offend God. Two, we hurt others. As Isaiah did to Rebekah in his attempt to escape danger in verse 6, as Abimelech threatened uh, 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 Abraham and Sarah, and also as Abimelech kicked Isaac and his family out because of fear of their strength in verse 16, we hurt other people as we try and control our joys and our pains. And three, not only do we offend God in our process of gaining control, not only do we hurt others, but we minimize our own joy because we're trying to find it through our own means and through creatures, through creation, and not through God and his plan as we were originally created for. But yet you know what our loving God does. He wakes us up from this destructive quest of control, from this counterfeit, self-reliant joy that we're so easily content with. How? By suffering. And he directs our attention to the true everlasting joy we were meant to experience as he has promised. Second point. The God who won't let us experience counterfeit joys or the God who won't let us settle in counterfeit joys. Okay. At face value, this claim that the Bible makes can seem very mean, right? To say God is the one who purposes suffering or can purpose suffering, um, even if it's for our everlasting joy, it just... It just seems cruel, but it's not. Let's, let's quickly compare the Bible's view with suffering to other popular views of suffering out there. Let's just choose three of the, top, of the biggest ones. Karma. Karma says suffering happens because you did something bad in your past. There's a one-to-one correlation between your suffering now and, and something bad that happened in the past. Second one, secularism. They believe that it's no God, it's just, it's just, everything's just by chance. Secularism says suffering is not actually a real thing. The strong survive and the weak die. Death is, is natural. It's how things are meant to be. Ultimately, it's kind of silly to feel bad about it. That's just, that's just nature. Three, positive thinking. Positive thinking says suffering can bring, bring you to a better place in your lifetime on earth if you can just think positive thoughts, if you just have enough positive thoughts, this suffering, something good will, will come out of it. These, if you say these things, they're, they're very cruel. Let me explain why. I had a friend in seminary. She was in the counseling program uh, a year above my wife. And not long after her joyous graduation date, she was hit with a devastating news. Her son overdosed. It was heroin, and he died. This is the most devastating thing that has ever happened to a friend of mine. And after her son's death, I saw her outside of the seminary parking lot. I want to tell her how sorry I was. I think I got three words in before I just started bawling. And this is before Elena. I just can't imagine the depth of despair somebody must feel losing a child. And you know what karma says? (laughs) Karma says what goes around comes around. 
And this happened because of a result of something bad you've done in your past. Friends, don't you dare say that to somebody who's in her position. That is cruel and illogical and unbiblical. Secularism says, ultimately, it's, I mean, it's sad, but it's just evolution playing its course. Death is natural. At best, secularists might say, I guess it's okay to feel a little sad, but really, ultimately, if you stay true to this logic, it's kind of philly to feel overwhelming grief. It's just the weak die. You see how cruel that is? Unbiblical and cruel. Third, positive thinking would say this. Don't worry. It's, it's sad now, but if you just keep a positive attitude, if you just keep positive thinking, you will see how this will be better for you in this lifetime. Just keep thinking positively. Some, somehow in this lifetime, your positive thoughts can change this calamity for something better for you. Her child died. What? Some griefs just can't be fully resolved in this lifetime. How does that turn to something better? Positive thinking says it'll get better. And what positive thinking says is that if it doesn't get better, it's her fault because she's not thinking positively enough about this. That's cruel. What does the Bible say? Bible says your grief, unlike karma, does not have a one-to-one -one correlation of something that you've done exactly bad in the past. Your grief, unlike secularism, the Bible says your grief can be overwhelming. You have the permission for it to be overwhelming because death is not meant to be. Death is not what we're created for. It's okay to be sad about it. It's not natural. And unlike positive thinking, the Bible says some griefs are just too great and you may not fully get over it in this lifetime. And it's not necessarily your fault that you haven't thought positive thoughts enough if you're not over it. Some griefs are just too deep. What does the Bible say? Why is grief here then? Because it's a broken world, but there is a God sovereign beyond this world, more powerful than it, who controls it and can purpose it for your eternal good, even beyond this lifetime. How? How? What does the Bible say? How does God use our suffering for our eternal good beyond this lifetime? Well, well, friends, so far we've seen the randomness of suffering in Genesis 26, right? And how we saw that pattern happen in Genesis 12 and Genesis 20 before that. Therefore, that tells us that somebody is in control over this. It might not be us, but God is. But the one thing we haven't talked about that throughout Genesis 12, 20, and 26, in this suffering, there is one promise that God made throughout the whole time of suffering. What promise? You can see it. He said it again in verse uh, 3 to 4 in our passage today. This promise he said before in Genesis 12. I'll just read it out now. This is God talking to Isaac, Isaac in Genesis 26. I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. 
land and offspring is the promise God gave Isaac in the midst of this suffering. The same promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 12 before he experienced the same exact sufferings that Isaac was going to experience. Let's read Genesis 12. What does God say? Before Abraham, Abraham's griefs of famine, before he was threatened by Pharaoh in Egypt, before he lied to his wife about his wife, God said this to Abraham. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will give you a land and a great nation, descendants, offspring. What is God saying? That through these sufferings, friends, through your sufferings, I have a promise that I want to remind you of. I want to point you back to because you keep forgetting it. You keep finding peace and joy in what this world can offer and not in what I have promised you. Don't you see how fleeting what this world can do? Look how easily and how randomly it comes and goes. Even the greatest joys are momentary. Stop putting your final hope in it. You were meant for more. This is what Paul meant, friends, in Romans 8, 18. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. When I see, when I see what it is God has created me for, I will finally, it will finally make sense of why he's trying to remind me of that by telling me the joys you're finding here, that is not what you're made for. I need to remind you of that because I love you. But how, what glory is this? What will we see? What will make sense to us when we see God? How will God resolve all this grief? Let's go to our last point. The God who won't let suffering be the end of our story. Stick with me. You see, it's interesting to see that the suffering Isaac suffered in our passage today, when you read it, it actually has a theme to it. Think about it. And the theme is related to God's promise. Think about it. What did the famine in verse 1 made Isaac do? It made Isaac leave his land and became a nomad. In other words, he had no land to settle in. What did Abimelech do to Isaac in verse 16 when he cruelly kicked him out of Gerar because Isaac was getting too strong and too big? He forced them out of their land. And he had to travel again. No land. The herdsmen, in verse 17 and verse 21, they kept taking Isaac's well and land in which he found the well and the water. He kept three, two times, kicked him out, kicked him out. What's the theme there? And he had to travel again, find another, what? Land. What is the theme of Isaac's suffering? No land to settle in so that his offspring can become the great nation that God has promised him in verse 3. <laughs> There's a theme. Why? Why are you doing this, God? Isaac might have asked. You're the one who promised that I will have land and offspring. You're the one who gave me this longing. Why aren't you letting me have land to settle in? How can your promises for me come true? How can I promise, how can I experience true joy in this life if you keep taking away from me? Don't, don't give me this longing in the first place. If you're just going to keep ripping it away from me, every time opportunities I have to fulfill it come true. Is this not similar to the cry of our hearts often? 
And I'd like to say that by the end of Isaac's time on earth, Isaac finally got the land of the offspring God promised, but he didn't. I mean, yeah, he settled somewhere and he saw Jacob and Esau being born. That's it. No great nation, no promised land. And if you read later in Isaac's life, uh, Isaac's descendants, Abraham's descendants, Isaac's descendants, uh, Israel, uh, they're enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. No land. Still no land for his offspring. Still no fulfillment of God's promise. After he's long dead. And this is heart-wrenching, isn't it? It's heart-wrenching to see the thing that we thought could satiate our deepest longings be ripped away from us, isn't it? Why would you do this, God? Why would you promise land to Abraham and Isaac? Why would you give them all those longings and, and, and tell them to go and pursue those longings in Genesis 12, but then as they pursue it, you just keep taking it away from them? Why would you give me these needs and these longings if you keep the possibility of them being, of them being fulfilled taken away every time? Why do you keep reminding me that I'm not in control by sending these random sufferings that don't make sense, even when I've been good? Is it because you don't love me enough? No. No, God says. It's because I need to remind you what it is you're made for. And it is not for the joys of this world that you seek so valiantly, but it's for the joy that I can give. Here's a question that we ask though, right? Well, God, why can't I have both? Why, why can't I have joys in this world and also your joy at the same time? You can't. Why? See, you can't, find, you, can't, you can't find joy in two places that are opposite of each other at the same time. Let me give you an example. When you feel better than somebody else, let's be honest, when you feel better than somebody else, is there not a sense of joy that you have? There is, right? I do, sinfully. You can't experience the joy that comes from being better than somebody else, but at the same time, want to experience the joy that comes from a humble and contrite heart. You see what I'm saying? There's joy that you find for being better. There's a, there's a joy there. But there's also a joy in being humble and contrite. You, you, you can't have it both. Choose which joy do you want. Do you want the joy that comes from from pridefully being self-righteous over somebody else? Or do you want the joy from a humble and contrite heart? Choose this day whom you will serve. You can't maintain the joy of holding onto a grudge towards somebody because let's be honest, there's a bit of a joy there, isn't it? When we know somebody's wronged us and we don't forgive them, there's a joy there because we're kind of we're putting their mistakes and dandling it in front of them as if we have power. There's a joy there. You can't want that joy, but at the same time, expect to feel the joy that comes from reconciling with them. You can't have it both. Which joy do you want? Do you want the joy that comes from, from not forgiving them? Or do you want the joy that comes from reconciliation? Choose. You can't have it both. God is saying, you can't find your ultimate joy from what, is, what this world provides and also want it in me. It's incompatible. Choose. And if left to your own devices, you know what this passage says man will always choose? We will always choose the joys of this world. We will manipulate, we will extort and lie like Isaac did, like Abraham did, like Abimelech did, like the herdsman did to Isaac to get and control 
and maximize joy and minimize suffering. And it is much less glorious, friends. It is much less glorious and much less everlasting than the joy God wants you to have in him. But God, in his everlasting mercy, says, I love you too much to let you choose these counterfeit joys over the joy that I have to offer you. So what does he do? He wakes us up by showing you how fleeting they are. It's fleeting. How? With suffering. But friends, listen closely. Your God does not leave you in your suffering. Listen now to the fulfillment of his plan. Listen to the joy that he can give you that the world cannot. Yes, it's true that Isaac didn't see fulfillment of God's promise in his lifetime. Yes, he died before he, before he saw this promise come true and his longing fulfilled on earth. But then, then he saw God in heaven. And think about this. What does he see? What does Isaac see in heaven, friends? Paul tells us later in the New Testament what Isaac saw. Paul tells us later in Galatians 3.29, connect what Paul says here to the promises God made Isaac. This is what Isaac saw. Paul said, and if you are Christ's, that means if you receive Christ as Lord and Savior, then you are Abraham's offspring. You are Isaac's offspring. Heirs according to promise. What promise? The promise we just read in Genesis 12 and Genesis 26. His descendants were not just meant to be biological Israel. It was meant to be everybody who's received Christ as Lord and Savior. They are the children of the promise. They are Isaac's offspring. Imagine what Isaac must have said to God when he realized this. Wait. What? When you said offspring, God, during my time on earth, I thought you just meant maybe at best a few thousand people? A few thousand people who will be a nation that you said? That's what I thought you meant. That's what I longed for. That's what I manipulated and, and coerced to get. That's all I wanted. That's all the capacity my mind now has to expect on earth. But now I see what you meant. A few thousand people wasn't enough for you. You wanted to give me everyone who believed in Jesus? The millions of saints throughout the ages? That's what you meant as my offspring? All the believers? <laughs> and God says, yes. Yes, that's what I meant, Isaac. Can the world give you that? And think about it, if, if, the, if by offspring, Isaac's offspring, God meant all the believers who trust in Christ Jesus, what land do you think God's talking about? What land, is God, what land do you think I was talking about, Isaac? What land does the book of Revelation say those who are in Christ settle in? Was it just one small piece of land that Isaac might have had in mind? No. The new heavens and the new earth. That's the land I wanted for you, Isaac. Imagine what Isaac must have felt when he realized this. Oh, all I wanted was a piece of land for my descendants to settle in and be a nation in. <laughs> Isaac might have thought, that's all I wanted, a nice piece of land. That's all that I longed for. I would have been happy with just that. But you, oh God, you were not satisfied with that. You wanted to give me the whole new heavens and new earth? For my offspring to settle in? 
All my suffering, all my pain, is you trying to tell me this? Is you trying to redirect me that even the greatest promise this world can make in my wildest dreams could not fulfill me in a way that you can? It is infinitely small to what you have planned for me. And you loved me infinitely to keep reminding me of how fleeting these joys of the world are that is incompatible with you. So I can enjoy the true joy that was originally I was meant for, not found in creation, but found in the creator. It wasn't because you don't love me, God, but it's because you love me too much to let the temporary, finite, and counterfeit joys of this world satisfy me. If I only knew, Isaac might have said, if I knew this is what you wanted for me, through my sufferings, if I knew that you wanted me to let go the fleeting joys of this world and invite me into the everlasting joy that you promised, I would have never thrown curses at you. I would have never waved my fist your way in time of suffering. I would have never tried to gain control over my own joy by selling out my wife. I would have, I would have never tried to gain control and disregarded your laws and challenged your authority as God. How, God, how could you give me all this? Weren't you upset with me? Weren't you angry at me this whole time that I was cursing you? Weren't you fuming with wrath? Yes, I was. God says, yes, I was angry at you. I was filled with the holy wrath, Isaac. Every time your quest for control hurts others, every time you doubted me and you cursed at me and you disobeyed me, I was filled with the holy indignation that you cannot begin to imagine. So, wh so why are you giving me all this, God? Why am I enjoying all of this instead of experiencing your wrath? Friends, here's the best part of God's promise to Isaac. How am I able to give you all this, God said? Because I threw all that wrath unto my son. What? Who? You, your son. Yes, Isaac. My son. Your offspring. Remember? Remember I said that through your offspring, which, by the way, grammatically in Hebrew, offspring is singular, not plural. Through your offspring, I will bless the nations. What did you think I was talking about? I was talking about my son, who will be born through your lineage, Matthew 1 says, in a manger. His name is Jesus. And one day, he will willingly bear the wrath I have that was meant for you so that I can bless you for eternity and fulfill in you what you were made originally for, the object of my eternal love. That's how I'm able to give all this to you because the wrath you deserve, I put on my son. And imagine what Isaac could have done in response at that time. He would have fallen down to his knees and cried out loud, How great is our God! This is what you're made for, Isaac, friends. This is joy. This is redemption, not what the world can offer. That's not good enough for you. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to remind you of how fleeting the joys of this finite world is and remind you of what you were made for, my eternal promise. 
Friends, our unmet expectations can be overbearing. And the Bible says it's overwhelming. Our losses are it's tiring. But the Bible says suffering is not purposeless. It's not random. In Christ, the sovereign God purposes it for your good. Your Father is reminding us of the eternal joy we were meant for in Christ. Look at eternity beyond the curtains of this world. And without the sufferings, we would buy into the lie that we're only meant to live here for this world. He does so not because we deserve it. He loves us not because he owes us this joy. But because even to the point of death, death on a cross, he has wanted you for himself. And he has put upon his son every ounce of wrath meant for you and me. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flames shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. I love you, he says. Look at me. Let's pray.